you're listening to No Borders Media. On this episode, we explore in more detail the recent migrant caravan that courageously traveled from Honduras through Guatemala to the U.S.-Mexico border. We speak with two migrant justice organizers, Stacy Gomez and Yurissa Varela, based in Halifax and Ottawa, respectively, but also with links and origins in Central America. Together, Stacy and Yurissa provide basic background about the caravan, including an eyewitness account from Veracruz, Mexico, by Yurissa. They break down the lies and myths about the caravan perpetuated by the Trump administration, the far right, and much of the mainstream media. Stacy and Yurissa describe the mutual aid between migrants and solidarity expressed by supporters of the caravan during its journey. There's a focus on the situation of LGBTQ plus migrants, as well as the current women-led hunger strike in Tijuana by caravan participants. Importantly, we break down Canadian state and corporate complicity in creating the displacement of Central Americans, such as the role of destructive mining companies in Honduras and Guatemala. We also focus on debunking Canada's role as some sort of state that welcomes migrants, all in the context of the continued imposition of the Safe Third Country Agreement with the United States, as well as the deportation of migrants who reside in Canada, such as Lucy Francineth Granados, who was forcibly deported to Guatemala in April. This interview was recorded on December 3rd, 2018. I'm speaking with two migrant justice organizers and activists, Stacy and Yurissa. Stacy is speaking to us from Guatemala, Guatemala City, and Yurissa is speaking to us from Hamilton, Ontario, but they've both, both been active in solidarity and support and awareness raising around the recent migrant justice caravan. And maybe we shouldn't call it caravan, but we'll get into that. The migrant justice caravan that, that went from Honduras uh, all the way to the U.S.-Mexican border. Stacy and Yurissa, welcome to No Borders Media. Thank you for having us. Hello. Uh, it's great that you guys could take the time. Just to maybe start out, maybe both of you could introduce yourselves more in more detail. I just gave a basic outline, but also talk about some of the solidarity and support work you've been doing for the migrant caravan. And both both of you are also people with backgrounds, family backgrounds uh, in Central America. So talk about that a bit as well. Uh, maybe we could start with you, Yurissa. Okay. So, um, yeah, so at the present moment, I'm just a graduate student at the University of Ottawa. Uh, my family came to Canada from Honduras as refugees in the 1980s, kind of fleeing persecution over there. So I've always been very interested in, in human rights and everything like that. So with the caravan, it kind of hit home because it was uh, um, just seeing people like women and children, especially, it was like, wow, that could have been my family. And so for what I've been doing lately is I've just been part of the Honduro Canada Solidarity Community. And so I'm just one of the co-organizers, and what we do is just, um, like, host events to raise awareness on the issues. But most recently, I actually made a trip down there as part of an initiative by um, Muse Art. And so we went down there November 2nd to the 5th and kind of just saw what was going on on the ground and then trying to just bring those stories back up to Canada. And then from there, we're just looking to do some more um, awareness events in the future and just working with other organizations doing the same. And uh, and you, Stacy. Um, I'm Guatemalan Canadian. I work with a um, Guatemala um, solidarity organization based in the Maritimes, and I've been involved in initiatives uh, on the East Coast in solidarity with the migrant caravan. Um, so that includes an event we held on November third where we commemorated the men who've died uh, on the journey, including Henry Diaz, who was shot in the head by a rubber bullet um, at the hands of Mexican authorities. Um, we also wrote messages of solidarity that we uh, wanted to reach the uh, members of the caravan uh, and also encouraged people to uh, reach out to the Canadian government uh, for a response. And yeah, in total, there were about 50 people that came out. So that was uh, really great to see that support in our community. And I was also involved in uh, launching a phone and email blitz on the International Day in solidarity with the caravan and exodus from Central America. Uh, and that was on November 25th to the 26th. And so, yeah, we've been calling for an end to the Safe Third Country Agreement, uh, open borders to the uh, refugees and migrants in the caravan, and also uh, connecting uh, those issues to what's going on in Canada and the uh, mistreatment of migrants and refugees in the Canadian context. 
I've also been coordinating with people throughout the country and also globally in solidarity with the caravan. Um, so that's a bit of the work that I've done uh, to date. And and a lot of what you just mentioned, Stacey, here, some of the themes we'll definitely be getting into on uh, on today's show. But uh, before going on, I don't usually do a follow-up on intros, but Yurissa, you, you, know, you mentioned that your family came as refugees and seeing the images and, and um, the media around this caravan was something that prompted you to act. But could you talk, talk more about that? How did, how did you take that in when, when you were seeing this? This is a caravan that originated in Honduras. Some of the others uh, over the past year have originated in other parts of Central America. But um, could you share more about, about how, you na- how you navigate those, those feelings as somebody who now is studying it, you know, at the University of Ottawa and is able to access um, certain things that other people want to be able to access and are and are marching to do so, whether in the U.S. or at, somewhere else in the world. Uh, talk a bit more about how how you took that in as as someone whose family background is as refugees from from Honduras. Yeah, so um, I guess the way I would approach that question is um, is I always say that I'm kind of between two worlds. So growing up in the family I grew up in, it was kind of seeing the realities of what people had to go through to get to Canada and you kind of realize that people come through from very vulnerable situations and you don't flee your country, your homeland without having a very good reason to do so. So it, for me, having even being at university, I understand that I'm very privileged too. So it's kind of like a responsibility I felt as well to speak out. Um, but yeah, just looking at the caravan itself, especially the fact that it was coming from Honduras, which is usually a country that people don't know too much about. I was kind of, um, it just hit home, as I mentioned, because cause as, I, as I saw, like I was seeing what the media was saying up here, that it was an invasion, or especially in the States, it was saying it was an invasion. Um, there were criminals, there was mostly men, and it was just very one-sided. So for that reason, I was kind of just, I was just, I felt like a lot of the main points was getting missed, especially people not understanding the situation of Honduras. So for me, it was uh, it was just kind of an eye opener to know that okay, so it's really important that people know these stories because it's very it's like these are people's lives that are on the line too, especially if you don't know too much about the country. And so uh, I guess uh, it was just it really hit home just knowing that like those are our people, and a lot of the people that are fleeing right now are fleeing the same types of uh, situations that my family fled. So. I mean, I can see I'm a product of, of one of those families coming and arriving here safely. So it was just, uh, it's just very emotional for me to even think about it. It's like, because I, as we went down there, like I met the children, I met the mothers and I met even just the, the elderly and, and the other groups and everything like that. And it was just, people are very humble and, and just wanting to have a better life for their families. So that's one of the main things that I was kind of, uh, I just wanted to make sure that we continue to like emphasize that. And it's like not criminals. It's not an invasion. It's people looking for a better life for themselves and for their families. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Yurissa. Let's, yeah. uh, let's get, into, um, get into the analysis here a bit. Um, so could you give either of you or both of you, could you give our listeners uh, some basic background information about this caravan that, that made its way from Honduras through Guatemala and Mexico to the border, to the U.S.-Mexican border. It was something that dominated media headlines, particularly because it was exploited by the Trump administration and by right-wing media. Um, but give a listener some of the factual background to what this caravan was, who was on it, um, where it went, how it was organized, as best as you can. So, yeah, the caravan, refugee caravan the migrant caravan or what's being called the mass exodus from Central America began on October 13th. And many of the people, uh, as was mentioned, are families, uh, more than a thousand are estimated to be children. And yeah, most of them are uh, refugees and migrants from Honduras uh, who are escaping a situation of widespread violence, poverty and government repression. And there are also people from other parts of Central America uh, so we heard of uh, one caravan from Central America. Uh, from we heard of one caravan from El Salvador, uh, and they the people in the caravan are calling for the situation in the region to be recognized as a humanitarian crisis that has led to their forced migration, um, so they can have the necessary protections um, that they so far have not had. Uh, Along the way, they faced a lot of repression uh, from the Mexican and Guatemalan authorities, as well as uh, from the U.S. Uh, So they've traveled 
over 4,000 kilometers to reach the U.S.-Mexico border, and already uh, 6,000 have arrived. And I can speak a bit about a situation that happened on November 25th. Uh, so there was a peaceful uh, protest um, that was happening at the border, and U.S. Uh, border Patrol agents fired tear gas and rubber bullets at hundreds of refugees and migrants, many of them women and children, uh, as well as a small group that had sought to approach the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, and the Mexican authorities uh, threatened to deport anyone who had participated in that protest. Um, so that's one example of the kind of repression uh, that they faced uh, in their journey. Irisa, do you want to any add anything about uh, just some of the factual background to the caravan? Yeah, I guess I would. Uh, I would add that it was it was started as something that um, it's not new to have migration from Honduras uh, and Guatemala and um, up to to the border. But the thing is, what's new about this one is the fact that it's safety in numbers. So the caravans, it's an organic kind of um, kind of solution to migrating north, where people would do it anyways. But it's just safer to be part of a larger group. And as people went on, more people joined. So it was very organic. Uh, so I think that's what I would add to that as well. And as as both of you have alluded to, these these caravans have happened before. I guess what's different though about these caravans happening this year is the way they've been exploited by the far right for for political motives. Because as we as we all know and as people can appreciate, people are moving all the time, and particularly moving from the south, from Central America, and from Mexico into the U.S. Erissa, um, you mentioned before that you were able to travel down. Where where did you go to exactly? Um, so when we went down, we went to Veracruz. Uh, it's actually known as probably one of the most dangerous corridors through Mexico for um, undocumented migrants or people migrating north. So where we went uh, initially to meet the caravan was in a small little town called Sayul de Aleman. And uh, that was, uh, that was uh, when they were lining up to get um, buses from the governor. I guess it was like the, the head of the state or something that was organizing buses. But they didn't end up showing up. So then we were just there from from that initial point to when they got to the city of Mexico. Can you describe more about what you saw? I mean, you alluded to it earlier when you introduced yourself, but could you give our listeners a, a larger sense of um, how it felt to be there, what you saw, how things were organized, um, um, especially in, in that stage of, of the caravan, which was still you know quite, quite far away from eventually reaching... Um, um, the border in Veracruz uh, is uh, south, still south of Mexico City. So uh, talk about mm -hmm. uh, how, what you saw. Right. So when we went to Sayol de Aleman um, and the buses didn't end up coming, we uh, we didn't know what to expect, really. We were just going to, to see what was going on on the ground. So uh, eventually everybody split into two directions. And what happens is with caravans, I guess, um, everybody meets at certain cities. But in between those cities, um, like the groups will split up and they'll make their own way there. So while we were there, you know, we were just in the middle of everybody trying to figure out what to do next. There was like mothers and, and, and children and strollers. And so everyone's heading on foot. But there's also people who are um, kind of taking the, the trucks, as you'll see in the in pictures of the caravan. So that helps like ease the transition of having to walk so many kilometers. Uh, so basically what we saw was that um, a lot of time there's a, it's very difficult and, and it's not like organized in a way that everybody knows what direction to go. When we were there, we could see that there was a lot of kind of uncertainty as to what route was best to get north and, um, and what the next step was. So it was a very kind of short-term thing. It was like, okay, so we're here, so where do we go now? Uh, what we saw also was that um, in certain cities, they the caravan will they'll they'll put people in like a shelter, and then sometimes the cities will donate um, like food and and water and provisions and things like that. Uh, so uh, from what we were seeing, there was a lot of support, but by the time I guess um, you get a little bit more north, is like as you'll see, that's deteriorated quite a bit, especially in Tijuana where there's a, little, there's a lot less support for the, the caravan. But what you'll see as well is people just exhausted. I mean, they were just at the city of Mexico, and they were already really, really tired. So um, I can only imagine, I think it was almost, it's like about double to get up to the actual border, if I'm not mistaken. But 
I mean, you have little little kids, so they're exhausted. You have mothers and pregnant women as well, and elderly too, and they're doing the journey mostly on foot. So, of course, people are going to be exhausted, and there is a lot of um, the cold as well. Like people had, um, they're getting sick as well from from so much walking and just being like um, in the elements, like with rain and everything like that. So it's just it's a very precarious situation because even when we were there, by the time we got back um, in the same city that we were in, uh, like with the the people migrating, uh, it was told that there was a hundred migrants who had disappeared on two trucks. And that was part of the same group that we were amongst. So it was uh, kind of an eye opener to how, how um, serious the situation is for, and how precarious the situation is for people who are migrating undocumented. So it was just a it was a big eye opener for sure. Stacy, you, you early mentioned the the death of Henry Diaz, who was a a twenty six year old migrant from Honduras. Uh, could you talk more about that? That happened when the crossing of the caravan happened at the Guatemala Mexican border, from what I understand. Uh, talk a bit more about that. You, you you mentioned that you had organized solidarity activities around the killing of Henry Diaz, and I wasn't aware until you had mentioned it earlier that that there had been deaths on the caravans. I know there have been injuries and other things, but uh, can you talk more about about that? Yeah. So at the event that we organized in Halifax, we wanted to commemorate uh, the. I believe it was five people at that point who had died. So well, some of them uh, died because they fell from trucks that they were using to, to travel. Um, and that emphasizes the precarity of, of the modes of transportation. Um, and, but in the case of Henry Diaz, he was uh, shot by Mexican authorities. Uh, and so we had a commemoration uh, and pictures and a little vigil uh, for each of them. Uh, that was also uh, around the time of uh, Dia de los Muertos, uh, so Day of the Dead, um, and so we wanted to honor them. Um, so that was a part of the event that we had, uh, in addition to, um, to to writing solidarity messages and uh, speaking about the connection uh, that uh, Canada has with Honduras and its role in creating the situation uh, that has forced people to leave their homes. Before uh, getting into dispelling the myths and lies around the caravan, this is the kind of show where we can get into things a little bit more deeply. And I know there's a lot of um, layers to this. So, for example, um, Eurissa, you mentioned that in, in, in Tijuana, which is right at the U.S. border, there were there were um, right-wing people that, that were critical of the caravan and in some cases demonstrated against it. And I do know, Stacey, in, in talking to you before and just general knowledge that there's a lot of discrimination in Mexico, in southern Mexico, toward Central American migrants, which which might explain a little bit the way in which the Mexican authorities were reacting by using rubber bullets against migrants trying to cross from, from Guatemala into Mexico. So uh, could either of you just talk about the dynamic in Tijuana and the dynamic at the Guatemala-Mexican border and some of the layers to this? Because I do know that as that caravan was moving forward and moving north, there was a lot of solidarity and there was a lot of support from all kinds of people. But at the same time, there are state-level repression, but also people who who denigrate migrants and sort of we get stuck in this divide and rule where people have a little bit better shit on people who don't have it as good as they do. So uh, could you talk to those layers uh, from the U.S.-Mexican border down to the Mexican-Guatemala border? Okay, uh, Yurisa here. Um, so I can speak a little bit about the Tijuana and just through Mexico, uh, from what I heard on the ground. Uh, when we met the caravan in, uh, it was just before the city of Mexico, uh, we had heard there was so much solidarity, like you mentioned. It was just, um, it is divided, of course, like the state might not be as supportive, but the people will come out and just, uh, give what they can to to help people migrating and it was just uh, it was beautiful to see but also it was beautiful to hear from even the people within the caravan of how much support they've received from from the pueblos like from the little towns um but in Tijuana I guess you like just like you're mentioning it's uh it's a little bit more difficult because the closer you get to the United States the more of an influence I feel like it has as well and uh yeah so from the moment People were uh, arriving in Tijuana, even uh, people I'm in touch with in, within the caravan 
were letting us know that the tension was really high when they arrived and it was uh, something that could be felt. And of course, like you mentioned as well, there is the protest uh, against the migrants. So that's not just something that you see within the United States, within Mexico as well. There are some sentiments and, um, and yeah, so now you can see within the deteriorating conditions that are at the border, there's not as much support. Um, so yeah, that's what I bet there's been support throughout the country along the journey for, for a lot of the people that were migrating. Stacy, the the West seems to be fixated on the U.S.-Mexican border, but there's a real difficult reality at the Mexico-Guatemala border. So could you talk about that a bit more? So the U.S. Uh, was also pressuring Central American governments and uh, and Mexico to not let the refugees and migrants through. And so while there has been state repression, as was mentioned, um, like looking at the example of Guatemala, the the Guatemalan government uh, tried to, or Guatemalan forces tried to stop people um, from passing through uh, and detain people and uh, and also like specifically targeted people for deportation. Uh, however, there was a lot of solidarity from Guatemalan people as well. Um, so I just wanted to add that. So let's get into dispelling some of the bullshit that's been aimed at the caravan. And it's pretty stunning. Like this was one of the main talking points of far-right politicians, of racists, of uh, Trump during the midterms. And everything was aimed at it, including from some mainstream sources, you know, talk about invasion, uh, tidal wave, uh, the, the way people were being denigrated. And both of you, along with many, many other people, but both of you were involved in, in efforts to dispel those myths and those lies. So could you, could you talk a bit about some of the key things that needed to be addressed and were, um, you guys were hoping, uh, helping to dispel in, in terms of the solidarity work that you were doing? So I guess uh, returning from, from the trip to Mexico, um, that was one of the first things that we wanted to do is just to put something out there that dispelled those myths. So we came up with a little infographic that kind of says the five main myths that we kept hearing through the media and just like completely incorrect information. So, um, so here are some of them. So the first one's that the migrant caravans full of criminals. And uh, that was one thing. And when we went there, we were in the middle of everyone. And what we would see was unarmed women, men, children, trans, non-binary people. There was just it, people exhausted from the long journey so they were just looking for a better life and and like this this kind of like um stigma of, of putting um them as criminals was just really wrong um another myth that we came across was just uh people saying that it was mostly men and again we wanted to say that's not true it's women it's children it's elderly it's trans non-binary it's, it's people from all walks of life but also the men participating in the caravan also represent families back home. Um, and because it's a dangerous journey, uh, they take the risks themselves in the hopes of creating better life for their families. Uh, another myth was that it's illegal. So it's an invasion and that was, they're both wrong because what it actually is, is an exodus um, because the majority of the people participating are from Honduras. Um, they're leaving like really violent conditions, like political persecution, poverty, and so it's it's not just like a decision to just, you know, go invade a country. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with trying to find safety for yourself and for your family and just opportunity. Um, so people are not looking to invade any other country. <clears throat> and it's also legal within U.S. and domestic and U.S. domestic and international law as well. Uh, another thing that we wanted to make sure people know is that when they say like fixture their own country first, we wanted everybody to remember that um, people have done that. They've tried over and over again. Uh, they did so. They organized and uh, voted. They defended their democracy after a military coup in 2009. This is in Honduras. And they had another coup in 2016. So they were received with repression and, and violence uh, with a lot of people losing their lives as well. And then the last myth we wanted to make sure that everybody knows is that it People will always say like, oh, it has nothing to do with us up here. But the truth is that Canada and the United States have a huge role to play in creating the conditions down there. So even during the times where um, there was a military coup, 
uh, they pleaded for our help and we didn't listen. They asked our government to stand up and speak out against the human rights violations going on down there. But instead, Canada and the United States recognized the illegitimate governments and continued business as usual. And in Canada, it's actually important because uh, 90% of the mining that goes on in Honduras are Canadian mining companies. So we have a huge economic influence in that country as well. So basically, we just wanted to make sure everybody knows that we have to hold our own government and companies accountable for helping to create the conditions that force people to migrate. Stacey, do you want to add anything about the, the myths and the lies that have been aimed at this caravan? I would add that as an, a group that has been in solidarity with the caravan, we've see, we've had a lot of trolls, I would say. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you hear in the U.S. that people say, like, we're funded by George Soros or uh, we're not Canadian because we're not white and this kind of stuff. Um, so <laughs> what I wanted to add is not directly about things that are directed to members of the caravan, but just broader racist ideas that people hold uh, and seeing that directed to us as a group in solidarity. One aspect of this caravan, the the first um, or what seemed like the first group of folks to arrive at the U.S.-Mexican border was a, a bus, uh, buses of people who came uh, in advance and they were mainly LGBTQ migrants, which highlights something that both of you have mentioned, but you mentioned particularly, Arissa, about dispelling myths. So could, could one of you speak to, to the fact that there were, there were a significant amount of, of people who were, who were moving from Central America and trying to get to the U.S. Um, who were LGBTQ and, and organized uh, together uh, during this caravan? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, the first group to arrive um, from the caravans uh, was a group of LGBTQ plus individuals uh, who had broken off from the larger group. Um, so they mentioned having experienced violence. Uh, they mentioned having experienced discrimination um, from other members of the caravan uh, and also were fleeing situations of uh, violence and discrimination uh, in their home countries. Uh, so they face a lot of specific challenges um, and discrimination, including higher risks of violence uh, in detention um, due to homophobia and transphobia. Uh, and so uh, we heard about the case of uh, one member of a previous uh, caravan, uh, Roxana Hernandez Rodriguez, uh, who According to an independent uh, autopsy that was revealed, um, according to an independent autopsy that was released uh, not that long ago, uh, she had suffered abuse and neglect at the hands of uh, ICE agents uh, before she died. And so that really highlights uh, some of the specific challenges that the LGBTQ plus migrants uh, face um, in addition to the other threats that, that we've spoken about. Yurissa, did you want to add anything? Um, yeah, sure. So just to echo what Stacey was mentioning, um, even on the ground, we met with one of the LGBTQ plus um, groups, and they had actually given us like firsthand accounts of, of just the discrimination that they were experiencing within the caravan. <clears throat> and I guess um, one of the, the, like, the most vocal of the group was mentioning that he was actually hit in the face because of his his LGBTQ identity and it was the thing that, the thing was that it was within the caravan as well so they're also saying that they're fleeing Honduras because of a lot of the um, homophobia and transphobia that the country has as well so it's, uh, it's just uh, I guess an extra vulnerable group so it was the thing is it was uh, it was very dangerous for them as well even taking part in the caravan but yeah I can just echo what Stacey was saying is 100% right on all three of us are based in the Canadian state and we'll be taking some time um, during this interview to talk about Canadian complicity and and some issues that are uh, related to the caravan that relate to Canada. But before moving on, I wanted to talk more about the caravan itself. And, you know, throughout the course of the caravan, there's just been incredible organizing that you've both described a bit, but obviously people who are there and doing it day to day are the people directly affected, but from crossing various borders, um, uh, dealing with tear gas and, 
and bullets, uh, from self-organizing, um, from the recent attempt to try to enter the U.S., uh, from organizing in camps. There's a, there's a lot of self-organizing going on. But most recently, we've heard that tactics have um, one one tactic that people are using now at the U.S.-Mexican border for those migrants who are on the caravan who are still trying to get in is a hunger strike. So could you uh, could you talk a bit about this hunger strike which started just a few days ago at the border by people who were on the caravan? Uh, so yes. Jaggi, as you mentioned, there's a hunger strike that has been taking place since November 30th. And uh, there are still people that are uh, taking part in that hunger strike, um, especially um, a group of women has been carrying that work on. And there's also people uh, that are in solidarity that are uh, that are also in a hunger strike. And one of the key issues that they point to uh, is the U.S. is purposefully creating bottlenecks that are leading to uh, for refugees to wait a significant, significantly long time to be able to make their asylum claims, and it could actually be months um, for this process. So the people who are participating in the uh, hunger strike are calling for an increase to the number of uh, asylum cases that are processed to 300 per day. Uh, and they're also uh, calling for uh, the names of the people who have been detained and deported to be released, in addition uh, to closing of uh, detention centers uh, where people face uh, very poor uh, torture-like situations. Um, so that's something that is ongoing um, for the time being. If um, if we ask ourselves the question, why are people moving and why are they displaced? Um, there's several replies that we can give, but one of them, one of those replies, uh, can be found on the stock markets uh, in Toronto, in Montreal, and Vancouver of various Canadian companies. And you both have in your organizing highlighted the complicity of Canada, both our foreign policy, but also the actions of corporate capitalist actors. So can you speak more about that, the role of, of Canada, uh, the Canadian state and Canadian capital in creating displacement of migrants from Central America? I guess I would say that uh, Canada's role is really significant, especially in Central America and Honduras especially. Um, as I mentioned before, 90% of our mining companies that are present in Honduras are Canadian. And those are based in Vancouver and Toronto. And um, so actually it's interesting because one of the, one of the, um, the youth that we met on the ground, he was actually fleeing from persecution from one of the security forces from one of those Canadian mining companies. So he was defending his, his community's territory because a lot of times with the mining companies, what they do is they go in there, they exploit the, the natural resources, but it ends up containing supplies or the agriculture. And so um, another gentleman had mentioned that he said, well, I have a house, but what good is a house if you have no food or you know, have no water? So if the communities that are dependent upon the land are getting um, kind of their livelihoods are, are getting destroyed, then of course you have no other option but to flee. And um, so, yes, Canada has a huge role in that because in, in today's society, money talks and mining companies are one of the most powerful companies and, um, and a lot of times they're multinational, so they are a powerful force to reckon with, and they have a lot of influence within the country. Uh, another thing is that within Honduras alone, when they had the military coup and the electoral coup in 2016, Canada was immediately um, one of the first countries to recognize those illegitimate governments instead of listening to what the people had to say on the ground. So Canada has a role because um, because we are a powerful country, and when we say something, when our government says something, then that reverberates around the world, and, and it legitimizes or delegitimizes government. So that's the role that we have, especially our companies um, in Central America and in Honduras. Stacey? Um, yeah, adding to what has been shared, um, Canada was the first country to sign a free trade agreement with uh, the Honduran government after the coup, uh, and it also provided uh, funding for the rewriting of the mining code, uh, which is favorable to Canadian mining companies. 
Canada has provided funding to uh, for surveillance by security forces in Honduras, and we know uh, that it's a government that is repressive uh, towards its people. Uh, and we also, uh, as was mentioned before, uh, have a lot of interests in the mega tourism, mining, and maquila sectors in Honduras. Uh, and so uh, our government, <laughs> we're not really, there's no corporate accountability uh, within Canada. And even something like the Canadian Ombudsperson for Responsible Enterprise, which the Trudeau government uh, committed to establishing 10 months ago, uh, that would provide some uh, avenue for people to bring forward complaints uh, in a non-judicial manner about the harms of Canadian mining companies um, has actually yet to be established, and that was uh, 10 months ago. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like there is a lot of ways that the Canadian government uh, contributes to the conditions in Honduras uh, that are leading to people uh, people's forced displacement. There's a there's a phrase that's used in direct action organizing, which is you know name names and take addresses. So I want to sort of name some names and take some addresses, maybe not literally, but um, to get more specific about the the Canadian complicity. Now, obviously. That includes the Canadian government, and whether it's uh, you know conservative Harper government or liberal Trudeau government, they've all basically done the same sorts of policies. But in terms of the resource extraction companies, can you can you be more specific about what are these companies? What are their names? What are what are they doing? And some of the activity, uh, malfeasance, even criminal activity uh, that's devastated people in in Central America, whether in Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador, elsewhere. You're used to hear, so um, I could speak a little bit to. Um Honduras on the mining companies. Um, two of the main mining companies present there are Aura Minerals and Gold Corp. Um, Gold Corp actually has, a, it's pretty notorious for the environmental and human rights um, violations that they committed in Honduras because in a place called Syria Valley, they opened a mine up and there was just no no regard for the um, for the environment or, or even just like uh, the remediation, they said that they had remediated the land, but, um, but the people actually there, it's gold corpse. Um, that mine is actually known as the Valley of death because of the amount of contamination to the water supplies. Um, they leached a lot of, of just like harmful heavy metals into the water and it went into the land. And I guess people even now are dealing with some um, health repercussions of that. So, um, that is probably one of the main things, and that continues to have an effect on the people on the ground now. Uh, Aura Minerals also has its own mine as well in the country, and the same type of thing. The thing with mining is that it's, um, even when they say there's green mining, there's no such thing. Like It's very difficult to remediate the land. It's almost impossible to remediate the land after you've extracted all those heavy metals. So, yeah, definitely those two are the main giants in, in that country. Stacey, do you have anything to add? Yeah, Goldcore uh, also has uh, been responsible for economic, environmental uh, devastation in Guatemala with its Marlin mine in San Marcos. Um, and so it's a similar story. It hasn't pledged sufficient funds for the actual uh, adequate remediation of the site after after mining they basically they did provide the sufficient information or accurate truthful information for people to make an informed decision about the mine there's been a lot of resistance there uh, since it began in the early 2000s uh, and so there's that case there's a case uh, there are cases that be, are being brought forward in Canadian courts around operations of Hud Bay Minerals in El Estor. Uh, so there's the wife of a human rights defender, Adolfo Ich, uh, who was an active uh, resist resistor to that uh, project. Uh, there's a young man, Herman Chok, who's in a wheelchair uh, because he was shot at by uh, security forces of the company. Uh, and there are also uh, several uh, women who were uh, raped uh, in 
in attempts to forcefully evict them from their land. Um, so these are some of the cases that are moving forward in Canadian courts uh, that highlight the negative role that Canadian corporations have played in Guatemala. And uh, there are people who listen to this uh, listen to the show from all over, so just want to let them know that Gold Corp's uh, corporate headquarters is in Vancouver, and they're listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange. And obviously, that info is easy to find, as it is for other some of the other companies that have been mentioned. Before leaving um, the topic of Canada and Canada's role, beyond the fact that Canada plays this role in in pushing people and displacing them, push those pushing people away from Central America and displacing them, it, there's also sort of a hypocrisy going on because. While we're here in Canada, there are there are people from Central America who managed to get into the U.S. prior to this caravan or during the caravan, but many before the caravan. And a lot of them have had protected status in the U.S. under something called TPS, Temporary Protected Status. But that's going to expire for a lot of the countries that have had that, including many of these Central American countries. So a lot of people are trying to come to Canada, but we have something called the Safe Third Country Agreement, which prevents them from making claims at regular border crossings. Uh, some people have talked about if there are people waiting because of all these um, loopholes and blockages, as you guys put it, that the U.S. is putting uh, against the migrants who are at the U.S.-Mexican border, Canada can definitely offer to to take people in if that's where people don't mind going, if some of the migrants don't mind going there. So could you talk more about the hypocrisy of the Canadian government as it, as it relates to uh, this caravan and some of the things that we're doing in Canada to prevent migrants, whether... Central American migrants or other migrants from being able to get here. What I can say that um, yes, Canada Canada can absolutely do more to to help the people that are at the bottlenecked um, border entries right now, and um, and if Canada doesn't want to bring people up here, then the least that they can do is look into their foreign policy that's creating those conditions that are forcing people to migrate and take responsibility for the actions that that the government's done up here to create those conditions. So, I mean, even if they if they can't necessarily bring people, which I know that they can because they've done it before, um, it's definitely something to look into is, is what we can do to improve, like, um, Canada's behavior abroad. Stacey? Yeah, through our organizing in Halifax, we have tried to make connections between the situation that is faced by undocumented people here in Canada uh, and the ways that we are not meeting our international obligations uh, to refugees. And so one of the uh, one of the policies that we point to is the safe third country agreement with the U.S. that is based on the idea that US, the U.S. is a safe country for refugees. Uh, many people are saying now because Trump is in power, it's not a safe country, but this has actually been the case for a while and this precedes Trump. The situation has uh, exacerbated, yes. Uh, and so we're calling for an end to the safe third country agreement, uh, which you've shared a bit about that. Um, but I would just add, uh, we've heard uh, we've heard cases of of people being forced to cross irregularly uh, and in very harsh winter conditions in Manitoba. And uh, there's even been at least one death related to that. And so you, we want that to change. But we also have been mentioning the case of Lucy Francinez Granados, uh, who is a Guatemalan uh, woman who was living undocumented in Montreal for nine years. She's a She was a community organizer uh, and is the mother of three children. And she uh, had made a claim. Uh, she had uh, applied to she had applied for asylum in Canada. However, her application was denied. Um, at the time, Canada wasn't uh, accepting uh, refugees based on the grounds that she highlighted, uh, which was she faced threats by gangs and her husband had been killed. And so she was forced to leave uh, her country and she uh, stayed in Canada uh, undocumented. Um, she was forcefully 
uh, detained and arrested by three Canada border agents. And she still has an injury that she uh, sustained from that time that has actually made made it difficult for her to find work. Um, So she was in immigrant detention for a few weeks uh, where she didn't have access to sunlight uh, and uh, was very... She was hospitalized a few times and ultimately she was deported back to Guatemala. And so there's an ongoing campaign uh, to bring Lucy back. Um, More recently, uh, there was uh, development in her case uh, that the Canadian Human Rights Commission would not hear her case of... uh, that there was a recent development in her case that the Canadian Human Rights Commission uh, wouldn't hear a case that she brought forward against... uh, Canada Border Services Agency for the violence uh, that she experienced because it was said to be not in their jurisdiction because she's an undocumented woman. And so that highlighted the lack of domestic recourses that undocumented people in Canada have uh, when they face violence at the hands of uh, of Canada Border Services agents. So we uh, did highlight that in the actions that we have done because it's not just a U.S problem the way that undocumented people and refugees are treated. It's also a, an issue here in Canada as well. Iris and Stacey, let's, um, let's wrap things up. We've, we've explored a lot, but maybe uh, bring together some of the themes and threads because the media attention, especially the far-right attention on the caravan, doesn't provide any context to the larger issues around migration, the reality of migrants, self-determination, displacement, like the real reasons and the real issues that are around here. So that's a huge question. We could literally spend uh, days and days talking about that, but maybe in a concise way, if either of you or both can both of you just sort of by way of wrap up, uh, sort of draw together some of these threads about how we should be analyzing and understanding migration in the context of the recent uh, caravan from Honduras to the U.S.-Mexican border. Yurisa uh, here. So I guess uh, one of the major things, even just seeing the caravan on the ground, was that um, that this is one caravan but the truth is that it's kind of indicative of what's going on around the world um there's a lot more kind of pressure on resources and things like that and and it's um it's with climate change especially with the report that just came out like this is only going to get more and more serious as years go on so so the the thing is that it's absolutely necessary to help everybody in the caravan now but we have to think broader we have to think about how our society is now and if it's if it's taking into account the environment and and people and if it's putting people first like that's not what's happening now because we wouldn't see things like this like these mass migrations so it's important for us to to prioritize people and the environment and just try to live more sustainably because because we can't keep having these things. I mean, we can help one caravan, of course, but these these things are going to keep happening as years go on. So we have to think broader and like how we act as individuals, how we can change our habits to kind of just like live a more just world within our own society as well. And then hopefully that can transform our, our world as well in the end. Stacy, by way of wrap up, I'd say that our ancestors have been migrating for a very long time and that we're seeing that migrants are being treated like criminals because they're crossing a line and that's unjust. Um, As was mentioned before, uh, the way that I feel the way that things are now, even looking at the way that the Canadian government uh, is acting uh, and the safe third country agreement, um, things have not always been that way. Uh, As Eurisa mentioned, in the 1980s, when Central American refugees were fleeing U.S.-backed civil wars, uh, that they were forced to to leave and they went to the U.S. and and they were facing uh, deportation that would have meant uh, death. 
And so at that time, the Canadian government uh, opened its borders. And so I, I think that there's no reason to believe that that could not happen again. Iris Varela and Stacey Gomez, migrant justice organizers based here in the Canadian state, but with links to uh, Central America. Thanks for speaking with us on No Borders Media. For having us. Thank you. You were just listening to a No Borders Media interview with migrant justice organizers Stacy Gomez and Yurissa Varela about the migrant caravan from Honduras to the United States. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. You can also find our podcasts at Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and Pocket Casts. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. We end this broadcast with the song Pale Norte by Calle 13. Enveneno su champaña Sonrisa, yo veo una guerrilla, una aventura, un movimiento Tu lenguaje, tu acento, yo quiero descubrir lo que ya estaba descubierto Ser un emigrante, ese es mi deporte Hoy me voy pa'l norte, sin pasaporte, sin transporte A pie con las patas, pero no importa, este hombre se hidrata Con lo que retratan mis pupilas Cargo con un par de paisajes en mi mochila Cargo con vitamina de clorofila Cargo con un rosario que me vigila Sueño con cruzar el meridiano Resbalando por las cuerdas del 4 de Aureliano Y llegarle tempranito, temprano a la orilla Por el desierto con los pies a la parrilla Vamos por debajo de la tierra como las ardillas Yo voy a cruzar la muralla Yo soy un intruso con identidad de recluso Y por eso me convierto en buzo Y buceo por debajo de la tierra Pa' que no me vean los guardias y los perros no me huelan Abuela no se preocupe Que mi cuello cuelga la Virgen de la Guadalupe Sea como un llamado de voluntad y esperanza para todos, 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 todos.